afternoon and welcome to the 36th of the COVID calls. This is a daily discussion of the COVID-19 pandemic with a diverse collection of disaster experts. These calls are held every weekday at 5 p.m. Eastern time. My name is Scott Knowles. I'm a historian of disasters at Drexel University in Philadelphia. Today, the subject for our second May Day discussion is the pandemic and labor and we'll be spo specifically focusing on COVID-19 and maintainers. We're streaming on YouTube Live. You can also keep up with COVID calls via Twitter. My Twitter handle is at US of Disaster. You can also hear COVID calls recorded as podcasts. Just go to soundcloud.com and connect to the COVID calls podcast. Do please help spread the word and send suggestions for future guests and topics. Tomorrow, we get a public health update with Esther Chernak. Esther's been on several times, my colleague from Drexel University. And I will also speak with uh, disaster polymath, James Kendra. James Kendra is co-director of the Disaster Research Center at the University of Delaware. As of today, there are 3,562,919 confirmed cases of COVID-19 globally according to the Johns Hopkins University Coronavirus Resource Center. That's up from 3,276,373 cases on Friday. 1,172,670 of those are in the United States, up from 1,070,032 on Friday. There are now a total of 68,326 deaths from COVID-19 reported in the United States, up from 63,127 on Friday. I've heard from several people in the research community that they wished there was a way to grieve and to memorialize better in these times. This disaster has been so hidden, literally in some states the numbers are hidden, and the funerals force us to be distant, and the people providing care are distant for most of us as well. And I understand the impulse, and I mean no disrespect, but military jets flying over to me don't accomplish any sort of lasting memorial or outlet for grief. So in that spirit, today I'm gonna to do something maybe a little old fashioned. I'm gonna read just the beginning um, of an obituary. This one I read this morning and it really struck me. And here's the title, Remembering Paul Carey, the Colorado paramedic who voluntarily drove to New York to help fight COVID-19 only to die for his deed. This was published in the Washington Post this morning. When the call went out from New York for volunteers to travel to the epicenter of the pandemic in the fight against the novel coronavirus, Paul Carey raised his hand from 1,800 miles away. On March 28th, the veteran paramedic got in an ambulance and drove for 27 hours straight from Colorado Springs to New York City, trading shifts at the wheel with his colleague. They were part of a fleet of 29 private ambulances and 72 medics from across the country from the, country, the, from the company ambulance headed there to ease the burden on the city's overwhelmed EMS services. From the moment Carrie arrived, before they were even settled, Paul just kept asking, when are we going out in the field, said ambulance CEO Stan Bashovsky. Carrie would spend his final days in the field on the streets of New York, tending to coronavirus patients in the back of his ambulance as it raced from hospital to hospital. He worked for nearly three weeks until he fell ill with the virus himself. Kerry, a 66-year-old father of two and grandfather of four, died of COVID-19. 
the disease caused by the coronavirus on April 30th after spending several days on a ventilator at a New York hospital. On Sunday, processions of ambulances and fire trucks honored Carrie in both New York and Colorado, this casket arriving at a Denver funeral home draped in an American flag. New York EMS workers and a state health official paid their respects to Carrie's family in person. His family said in a statement they were devastated by his loss, but that they knew Carrie risked his own health and safety to protect others and left this world a better place. Sticking with the theme of labor that we started on Friday and just a remarkable conversation on Friday um, with my guests on May Day, I wanted to also have um, some other experts to talk a little bit more about labor and maintenance and essential work. And I couldn't think of anybody better, I could uh, think no one better is a better way to put it, uh, than Andy Russell and Lee Vincel to come and speak with me. Let me introduce them to you. Andrew Russell is professor of history and dean of the College of Arts and Sciences at SUNY Polytechnic Institute in Utica and Albany, New York. He is the co-director with Lee Vincel and Jessica Meyerson of The Maintainers, a network of scholars and professionals focused on maintenance, repair, upkeep, and the everyday labor that keeps the world going. Russell is the author of Open Standards and the Digital Age. He's the co-editor of Ada's Legacy, Cultures of Computing from the Victorian to the Digital Age, and co-author with Lee Vincel of The Innovation Delusion, How Our Obsession with the New Has Disrupted the Work That Matters. And that's a book is gonna be coming out a little bit later this year. I have no idea how he gets so much scholarship done as a dean, um, <laughs> tremendous. Uh, Lee Vincel is assistant professor in the Department of Science, Technology, and Society at Virginia Tech. He studies human life with technology, with particular focus on the relationship between government, business, and technological change. His first book, Moving Violations, Automobiles, Experts, and Regulations in the United States, was published with the Johns Hopkins University Press in July of last year. Vincel's work, alongside the work he's been doing with the maintainers, has also been published in several major history journals and has appeared in Aeon, the New York Times, the Atlantic, the Guardian, Le Mans, and other popular outlets. Andy and Lee, welcome and thank you for coming to COVID Calls. Thanks for having us, Scott. Thanks, Scott. Thanks for doing this. Thanks for everything you're doing. It's amazing. So I would like to uh, remind everybody you can get your questions in. Um, please get your questions in to YouTube Live and you can use the chat function on YouTube Live. You can uh, put them up on Twitter, just tag me at US of Disaster, or you can email me directly if you wish to, sgk23 at drexel.edu over this next hour that I have with Andy and Lee. The Maintainers has a, a large uh, network that goes along with it, so I do hope to hear from um, some folks in that network today if you have questions. So I want to start in with the way I've been doing all of these calls and just find out um, where you are and how things are going where you are. So Lee, let me start with you. Um, where are you calling in from and how are things there? I'm in my office at uh, Virginia Tech in Blacksburg, Virginia. And um, yeah, I mean, things are pretty quiet here 
and you know just shut down i do know that there are some cases locally but it's hard to get a read precisely on how many um i have a friend and student who you know both his mom and his grandmother got it so it's around here but it's really hard to get a sense of, of what's happening i think the invisibility of it all stands out and the campus is open for faculty I have I have walking papers actually like really? that allow me to get in because uh, I live in a cabin on the side of a mountain so I don't have high speed internet at home and so to teach I need to be able to come here. I see. Oh, well, thanks for making the trek in to jump on this call. I appreciate of that. Of course. Uh, Andy, same question to you. Where are you calling in from? And give us a situation report there. Yeah, I'm in New Hartford, New York, uh, just outside Utica, which is, um, if New York State's a triangle, we're as close to the middle as you can get. Um, our friends in Oneida, about 20 minutes away, claim that prize. Um, we're closer to Toronto than we are to Manhattan, so um, the scenes that are unfolding in Manhattan really um, don't have much bearing in, in my life other than the fact that uh, we share the same governor. Um, things are closed down. Uh, as I told you before, I'm in the only room in my house that has a childproof uh, handle. Uh, so the kids are inside and I'm in the unheated um, old garage here. Um, yeah, double digit uh, new cases every day. Our county executive is on Facebook Live every day doing a pretty good job um, trying to share information, but not overshare, you know. Um, so people are just sitting tight. You know, some some people are comfortable, some people are uh, are not. Well, I think it's fair to say that you two working together have launched um, a scholarly movement and it goes beyond scholars actually under this rubric of the maintainers. And I, I actually thought it would be good. I wanna point people to an essay that um, you wrote that was published in Aon in 2016. Let me read just a little bit of it as a way into some of the topics we're gonna to talk about today. The title of the piece is Hail the Maintainers. And if you haven't read it, uh, please do read it. Um, and this is, this is from the piece. You say, focusing on infrastructure or on old existing things rather than novel ones reminds us of the absolute centrality of the work that goes into keeping the entire world going. Despite recurring fantasies about the end of work or the automation of everything, the central fact of our industrial civilization is labor. And most of this work falls far outside the realm of innovation. Inventors and innovators are a small slice, perhaps somewhere around 1% of this workforce. So I imagine that, um, you know, the, the maintainers of those kind of claims you were making even four years ago, you have run them through the reality of the moment this time and some of these discussions we have around essential workers. So let's start with that. I mean, you've been talking about this for a while now, Lee and Andy, what's your sense of how the maintainers discussion and essential work connects with what we're living through right now? Lee, Andy, you wanna start? You kick it off, well, who's that? Lee, why don't you start? All right, all right, yeah. I mean, I think it's been amazing. Um, you know, this stuff we've been talking about, we've been trying to highlight this work for, you know, five years now. And it's been really amazing to watch it kind of bubble up, you know. Um, it feels like the notion of essential workers when it really took off, even, you know, mainstream places like CNN suddenly had their heroes and there was this whole kind of trope of these people out there uh, doing this work and how they were keeping our society going when, you know, all most of us had to be at home. 
I think for us, um, you know, that's been rewarding seeing like, we don't have to say it, seeing other people say it who don't even know about us. Um, but I think that the, you know, the flip side of it is that there's still questions about compensation and, and the kind of structural issues that these people face. So uh, recognition is only part of the story, only part of the game. And then there, you know, there's much bigger questions to be asked about justice and pay and, and how we're protecting these people and stuff. So that's the really thorny stuff that remains, I think. Andy, when you were, just to stay with this, when you were defining the category of maintainers, did you have the medical sector much in mind? Uh, no, not really. The, the people who come up the most when we talk about and think about maintainers are nurses um, because uh, they share the elements that Lee just mentioned, um, relatively low status, relatively low pay. Uh, although nurses as a profession are, are paid, you know, reasonably well, could be better. Um, but it's really that uh, the status gap between nurses and uh, doctors, especially the kinds of doctors you see on TV dramas or in, or in movies, um, or medical researchers who are making these, you know, breakthrough, um, breakthrough drugs or whatever it might be. Um, that combined with the lived experience that everyone knows that that a caring um, affect, a caring touch, caring gestures mean so much um, for patients when they're not doing well. Um, those are the things that we remember. Those are the things that often bring us um, back from the brink. And so, um, you know, that's the category of work that, that um, keeps cropping up. Although um, maintainers are everywhere, uh, as you know, uh, we tend to think more of uh, of other technological sectors, so um, janitors, plumbers, mechanics, mm. uh, those sorts of things, you know, linemen in, in the electrical power or telephone industries. Um, and then, of course, the people who are now deemed essential, uh, wage workers like uh, service labor at uh, places like grocery stores mm -hmm. and restaurants, um, to say nothing of domestic labor, unpaid, uh, non-wage labor performed primarily by women um, in households. So have you been surprised of the, the deployment of this term essential? I mean, it's, it's a, to me, it has seemed like a strange way to divide the world. I mean, mm -hmm. you know, in the maintainers, that's part of what you're telling us is that we're always dividing the world into sort of higher status and lower status work, but now it's being deployed in the midst of a disaster. I've never seen anything like that. I mean, we have first responders maybe, but that could be a short period of time. Here we're being told their whole sectors are essential workers. Lee, what do you think about that? Yeah, I mean, I think, I think there's a real irony there because, you know, take grocery store workers. Uh, we are always dependent on grocery store workers. Grocery store, they're always essential. Right. It's just when you get into a, a moment like this that it becomes, you know, that you start to think about it, it becomes visible or whatever. And so, you know, I think that that's, that's the irony I see. All the people who are essential workers right now are always essential workers. You know, we always depend on them. Um, and, but, uh, you know, it's easy for us to forget that when we're not in the midst of a disaster. So then what's the essential part? Is it that your, your life is at stake? I mean, is that the defining characteristic of what an essential worker is in this moment? Well, I think it's like... Um, you know, I, I've, um, 
I've heard some people refer to like uh, David Graeber's ideas of bullshit jobs right now. And they're suggesting that, you know, like any job that people aren't doing that's not essential is a BS job. And I don't believe that's true, you know, like, but I think there are certain kinds of jobs. And I think our lives are very impoverished in this moment and, all, and will only get more impoverished if the economy continues to be shut down the way it is. But I think there's certain jobs, certain kinds of work where our lives, our biological lives, hinge on them in a very direct way. Mm. And that's the work that Essential's doing right now. Um, it's just a very direct kind of like, you know, keeping the body going in, in this moment. Andy, what I know part But go ahead. Uh, I mean, it's a, there's some really interesting empirical questions here that I hope people are, are teasing out now or will in the future. Um, Comparative examples, you know, so so our governor, Governor Cuomo, uh, who did he deem essential on, um, you know, March 25th? And how does that change over time? As of yeah. May 1st, who is essential? Um, is that the same as or different than the governor of Texas or um, how people are doing it in uh, Japan or Germany? Yeah. And I, you know, I would love to see the results of that. I mean, maybe someone's doing that, but I think you know, it, it was kind of the running gag here because one of my buddies works in a liquor store is that, um, is that alcohol is essential, you know, so mm -hmm. alcohol is essential, weed's not, um, and the pot smokers in my life don't like that, but the drinkers <laughs> in my life do. Mm -hmm. Uh, so, you know, um, a, a universal definition of essential is, uh, yeah. I think would boil down exactly to where Lee is, which is, um, you start with life and limb, you know, you start with that, you strip away uh, luxury, you strip away um, flights of, of fantasy, um, and, and, you, and you start with life and limb, and then you kind of go from there. It seems to me that there's always this knife's edge aspect to this kind of defining project. I mean, I think back into World War I and the pandemic then, and to be declared in an essential industry at that moment might mean that the government was about to and it didn't happen, I mean, it didn't happen on a large scale, but there was a lot of threat that if unions didn't do what the government wanted it to do in that moment and increase production and, and change the structure of safety and work and things like that, that the government would deem it essential and therefore a takings was possible, a sort of mm -hmm. form of nationalization. The Defense Production Act discussions have been part of, part of this as well. I mean, I guess my, my question is, I don't know, Andy, is it, should people want to be defined as as essential? I mean, I, it, it's funny that that you say that because I was just thinking about the day that um, that some people on my campus were were moved from non-essential to essential, um, mm -hmm. and they're maintainers. It was the woman who runs the IT help desk. Uh, so the people on facilities, I think, have always been deemed essential because of the snow uh, around here, mm -hmm. uh, but you know, what, what keeps the university running? And then you, you kind of work backwards from the goal um, to the labor. And then once you identify what the labor is that you need, then you deem it essential so that it can continue. Um, so, no, you know, I think there's a, there's a great amount of fear and trepidation, uh, especially for people who are salaried workers uh, who could perform their job from home equally as well as they could from campus. Why would they want to be subject to danger? You know, it's different for people in the private sector. 
um, I would imagine, you know, people who are running, trying to run a restaurant or mm. uh, trying to run some kind of small business or, or large business, it doesn't matter, uh, or make a living from working there. But um, yeah, it's, it's a double-edged sword, as, as you say. There's been a lot of games played too. I remember when GameStop was staying open because they have like m computer mice and that was, they were saying, oh, we'll sell them to people who are working at home and that's essential. But it turned out their computer mice were like really high-end things that only gamers would buy. So it's just like, there's all kinds of firms that have been playing games with the definition. Um, and that's just, you know, I think whenever you create a kind of regulatory boundary, semi-regulatory boundary, you're going to get people playing games, trying to, trying to, you know, goop with the line. It seems like this um, empir empirical project, what you, maybe you're already doing it. I don't know. But if you're not, people should be um, actually keeping this. I've been talking about this with lots of folks in different ways. Like, how do we do our work right now in this time? And I don't know, maybe we can hear from people if, if they want to call in or email and give examples. It sounds like a really good project across the 50 states that people should be keeping track of um, essential worker designations and how that may be different. A lot of those things, as we know, can go missing from websites very, very quickly. Mm -hmm. Right. It's a, it's a spreadsheet with sit codes, right? I mean, it's, it's really straightforward, you would think, to at least assemble. Then you've got to stay on top of it. But um, it, it seems that straightforward. And no, I'm not doing it. I can barely, barely, <laughs> barely do whatever that I do. <laughs> I, I, I've had a bad habit in the last few weeks of finding great empirical projects for other people to do. Um, yeah. Uh, so, so I want to go a step further with this because your project is a historical project in which you talk about the sort of evolution of the development of these statuses of work you know, the maintainer versus the innovator, um, the technician versus the technologist, you know, I mean, these sort of uh, plays in which certain times, types of work, it's not that anybody would say anything bad about their auto mechanic, but ultimately they really want to put the emphasis in the economy on the, the innovator, the Elon Musk, mm -hmm. and we will get to him, I promise. But can you give us a little bit more background about how we get to this moment as a historical artifact, how the maintainer is produced and how the innovator is produced. Lee, can you take that first and then Andy, you can pick up? Yeah, in the book, um, The Innovation Delusion coming out in September, I mean, we, we go into the history of, uh, of this. I think there's, there's two things to say. First, if we look across cultures and go back very long in history, and we look at kind of status hierarchies around work, um, very often the people in the lowest platform and societies are doing kind of maintenance labor you could think of so you know slaves in ancient Greece or whatever um, you know the philosophers are sitting around thinking and the slaves are are doing the work of keeping society running um, and then when you bring that into industrial culture um, I think you know you start to see kind of status uh, hierarchies emerging around the railroad industry for instance where being a track laborer or a track maintainer was a very low status and terrible job that would really destroy you quickly. Um, so there's those kind of immediate low status jobs. Janitors are low status pretty quickly. And then there's also ones that go down over time. So, you know, to be a mechanic was a high status job in the 19th century. Mm -hmm. To be an electrician was a high status job in the 19th century. And over time, those kind of go down. 
So you kind of, but you know, basically these very old status hierarchies get mapped into industrial culture. And the amazing thing is when you do, there's been social surveys done since the 1920s where people rank the statuses of jobs basically. Mm. And, and what you find is that uh, the, the status rankings are uh, durable over long periods of time, like 50 years. Mm. And um, they're uh, basically you know, the same over the whole country. No matter where you do them, they end up being the same. So our argument, you know, is there really is a kind of mental model of statuses built into people by the way they're raised by their parents and in culture uh, that kind of makes a distinction between these high status jobs and low status jobs. And one of the places they kind of break down, the, the hierarchy breaks down is around innovation, uh, creation, you know, uh, and maintenance work. So that's, that's part of the argument in our book. Andy, do you want to add to that or? Other yeah, pieces so, of it. so so then you know to complement that micro level there's also a macro level um historical view which is really tied to consumer society and consumer culture um and the increasing prevalence of of technological consumer devices technology based consumer devices starting uh certainly in the late 19th century and then you know ramping up in the 1920s leveling off and then really ramping up in the 1950s uh, towards the present. And we discuss um, Jill Lepore's essay in The New Yorker was really nice um, in this respect, where the, the conflation, and Lee's played a lot around with, uh, with Engram as well, the conflation of um, progress and innovation um, over the course of the Cold War, uh, particularly at the end of the 1960s, when the era of, of social progress, uh, visible in, say, voting rights and civil rights, uh, waned um, and atrophied, but technological progress um, continued apace, right, into the 1970s and 1980s with the computer age, uh, to the point that we've all got these little uh, digital devices that we carry around, um, but nobody really knows what freedom is. And, and so, you know, it's the, it's the notion that innovation is somehow tied to uh, good in a, in a moral sense hmm. and, and a positive, uh, feature of a civilization um, is its ability to, to make new um, cheap disposable uh, stuff that that you know strips <laughs> stripped from the earth um, using low-wage labor of, of people who really don't have a choice and and that's called progress and that's it, it's tied into what we were discussing before because that's the comfort that's the luxury um, that now all of a sudden we're finding ourselves not quite able to sustain. So I can't just go to the iPhone store, the Apple store, and buy me another one of these things. Um, you know, I have to do it online. There, there's ways to do it if I have the disposable income. Mm -hmm. But what really matters right now is to keep the water coming, to keep the power on, mm -hmm. um, to be able to keep my family fed, those sorts of things. So, um, so I think the, the history, the long-term history of innovation, not only tells us about um, occupations like Lee was describing but it also tells us about how we think about things big things like progress uh, freedom mm. you know things that we aspire to to have and values that we aspire to maintain so within that structure and you laid it out really concisely almost like you just finished writing a book um <laughs> the what about you know going back to this category of care um talk a little bit more about the maybe status shifts or are they completely stable 
for uh, doctors, for nurses, for other people who find themselves in the in the hospital complex. Mm -hmm. I'm also interested in like elder care or, yeah. you know, people who might be part of this broader essential network that we're seeing now. How do they map into this? We have we have good data on that. Um, mm -hmm. So, um, yeah, the, the ranking of doctors as high status is is durable, right? Um, and nurses are much lower status. That's that sticks too. But um, the thing that stands out in what you were just talking about is kind of like um, elder care is a very low status, low paid job. Um, often, almost, you know, it's highly female uh, workforce. And, you know, in lots of places in the United States, it's also, my, you know, it's, prime, it's majority minority workforce. Um, and so, yeah, and like, you know, the health outcomes even for, um, you know, elder care, long-term care people uh, is really terrible. You know, they have more diabetes, they have more heart attacks, they have all these kinds of things. So, I mean, I think that this is, yeah, those, that status hierarchy is you know, kind of old and has been around for a long time. Now, it's interesting to see, you know, again, how the coronavirus kind of brings our attention to these people. We might talk about how they're heroes or, or things like that, but like the deep structures of pay and other things, just we don't see those shifting right now. Andy, I mean, does that, does that mean even this kind of rhetoric that Lee was just talking about, you know, the designation of essential or a hero in a particular moment? I mean, if you say this, if that falls in the same category of how we talk about soldiers, then in the United States, at least, we'll hold them in a sort of rhetorical high position. But if you look at the deeper factors, the structural factors that Lee's talking about, there won't be much change. I don't think soldier pay in the midst of a war tends to, I don't want to speak out of turn here, but I don't think those, you know, as soon as a war is over, you don't see a massive um, structural shift in the way that soldiers are treated in the United States. You expect a similar sort of dynamic here. We're going to do lip service to the maintainers, but the reality is the salaries are what the salaries are, the protections are what they are. Well, this is the, the beautiful thing about speaking in the present as opposed to looking in the past is that it's not too late. Uh, and we have another round of elections coming up. I would love to think that um, in local and state and certainly national elections, people are mindful of these issues. Um, whether they're mindful in, in the amounts enough to change things, I don't know. But I'm haunted as I think about this by, um, by John Stewart. Um, I think, was it just last year, maybe two years ago, going to Congress um, in tears, uh, trying to get people to remember um, the first responders uh, and how we rallied around them after 9-11 and how, um, how we've just disappointed them and, and cheapened ourselves in the, in the process. Uh, so, you know, <laughs> would it be too much to, to extrapolate into our future uh, to think that the same might happen with the essential workers mm. of the of the COVID nineteen uh, epidemic, um, you know, it depends on how pessimistic you are. You know, I mean, I mean there's a bit of social science too uh, to this. I mean, uh, our partners at um, uh, United Way's Alice program. Um, so Alice stands for Asset Limited Income Constrained Employed. They're basically the working poor. Forty percent of American households struggle to make ends meet. Uh, they have really great data at the county level. People should go check out their stuff. 
And we're doing a project with them where we're looking at basically the maintainers of society and how they map to that working, you know, like the 40%. And, you know, most of the, you know, the people who are Alice, the 40% of people who can barely afford to make ends meet are mostly maintainers. But something that stands out from a presentation I saw Stephanie Hoops do from Alice is that with these kinds of events like disasters, and I'm sure you know this from your disaster research, Scott, there's like a limited window of opportunity, you know, where, where you can get something done, you can get a law passed, you can, and then just, you know, the issue attention cycle moves on. Um, you know, that's what kind of stands out about history, you know, mm -hmm. and like, um, so I think that we should bank on that and try to act as soon as possible on things we care about. Does that track with your, your findings in the book that um, status mobility for maintainers is not really connected to disaster events or, or shocks? I think it goes up briefly, right? I mean, you, there's yeah. the, always the hero narrative around disasters where like, you know, the guys come in and turn on the electricity and yeah, like, sure. you know, like everyone's cheering, you know, and it doesn't turn into long-term yeah. change. Um, what about union membership as a function of that or other types of organization mm. that might come close to that any is that mm. a important variable and that's been on my mind a lot yeah um now wondering you know what kinds of structures can be in place when a disaster happens that can solidify these what you're talking about near-term attention that essential workers or maintainers might get do you have any any data or any even uh intuitive feel for that, the role of unionization here? Uh, nothing's jumping in my mind, no. It's a great question. Um, you know, it, the other thing rattling around in my head right now is the fact that so many maintainers think of themselves as anti-heroes. Uh, part mm -hmm. of the reason why they like the work that they do is that they don't want to be in front yeah. of the camera. They don't want to be on Capitol Hill. They just want to do the work. They feel good about doing the work. Then yeah. it's done. Uh, you know end of story so uh to think that right. these folks would be cast as heroes or or in a in a crusade for something is is awkward for many of them yeah i'm thinking of the electricians in long island after hurricane sandy you know all of a sudden had there was like this you know, national call for electricians to flock to long island and these kind of you know the way that yeah. they were or even auto workers in the 1980s to a certain degree there was a sort of genre of like celebration of the American auto worker in the 70s and 80s but there's uh, like you know if I want to be hopeful for a second like I do see some you know growing consciousness around like the plight of Amazon workers mm -hmm. um, and so uh, for instance this guy Tim Bray who was a vice president and distinguished engineer at Amazon Web Services just quit um, today or the day before, sometime soon, because of uh, the company's mistreatment of warehouse workers. So um, I do see, see, you know, a sense of kind of growing awareness that something needs to change at a deeper level when it comes to labor. Um, and, you know, I'm not so dark on the history of labor that I think, like, there's no way we could have another moment, you know, mm -hmm. where where we have positive change around labor rules and, and unionization. So, you know, that, that would be the hopeful take on the moment. I don't know if I can convince myself of it, but in those moments, yeah. Well, I mean, hopeful or not, it's important to articulate it as a possibility. I mean, the, my discussion that I had Friday 
with Juliana Reyes and Eileen Boris and Silvia Federici was tremendous in part because they came back to a generation's worth of, of activism and scholarship pointing out the idea that the home and housework as a side of work and care that must be valued as work and the feminist angle on that, that this yeah. is a moment to once again scrutinize gendered the gendered inequalities of work and the the geographical inequalities of work um and they were really i mean sylvia was and eileen were they were talking they were talking as activists and scholars mm -hmm. and that was an important thing for them to do i think it was also may day itself so everybody was kind of really you know that was what was appropriate for that day but really for any day i suppose the people that I'm talking to Liebensel and Andy Russell on COVID calls. We're talking about maintainers and COVID-19. Please do get your questions in to the YouTube chat or you can put them up on Twitter. I've seen there have been a few comments on Twitter, so we do still have time to get questions in. Um, I want to shift over to a different topic, which I know you both think about and that I've been lucky enough to think about with you from time to time, and that's about infrastructure and you know the standing joke about infrastructure week now i guess is not it may be as funny as it as it has been such a dark uh humor to to think about president trump himself as some sort of innovator or entrepreneur entrepreneur in the civic space that he could lead the nation in an infrastructure revival. But I'd like to get your thoughts about where we are with, with infrastructure right now. Maybe at a general level, what are we learning about infrastructure in the United States? What are we learning about supply chains? What are we learning about, Andy, get ready. What are we learning about standards? Like what are we learning about the way that our built environment is shaping this disaster? Andy, can you start with that? And then Lee, come back to you. Yeah, yeah so, um... I mean, I'll start with the internet because I remember being in conversations where people who don't know how the internet works said, so it all depends on the cloud when we were moving all our courses online. Um, the internet, I think, has performed uh, better than expected. Um, you know, it's sustained uh, huge amounts of volume, um, especially considering it's a, you know, 40 year old design that probably wasn't even best in class at the time it was built. Um, and the carriers that, that provide internet access for so many of us um, are among the most hated companies in America, um, <laughs> whether cable companies or telephone companies. So, um, you know, any infrastructure success story should be a quiet success story. And I think the internet um, is one of those. I think things get a little uh, dicier um, and I'm guessing some of your other guests have looked into this more than I have when we when we start thinking about supply chains um, 
and and it's you know as a scholar it's interesting as a as a citizen or a customer it's downright scary or as a neighbor it's downright scary when we think about things the gaps um, and the and the soft spots that have arisen whether it's meat um, for people who love pork or uh, uh, PPE for people who um, are medical professionals. Um, the different, you know, the different things that have come up that you wouldn't have anticipated. So the, it's not about the tests, it's about the different solutions to run the tests, you know, all those sorts of things that are in supply chains that, um, that it's difficult to anticipate and, and plan for in an economic sense. Um, those are being exposed. So, um, it, you know, it's definitely a stress test. And I'm not sure we've got it, just like you were saying with the underreported data about health outcomes, I'm not sure we've got um, honest data about um, the reliability of different types of supply chains and, and networks that sustain everyone. Um, you know, I, I just don't know. I mean, maybe, maybe we do, maybe, maybe we don't. Yeah, I think that it's shown how how fragile the supply chains are. You know, I, I was reading somewhere that part of the shortage on toilet paper um, has, you know, it may be not as much about hoarding and over purchasing than it is from a, a switch of consumption from like people use the toilet at work and now they're doing all their toilet using at home. You know, they're actually using the toilet more at home and like, you know, our system is split into work toilet paper and home toilet paper and this isn't very you know, it's not just like you just can't these complex systems we've built you just can't switch them on a dime like that so i think it really has exposed the, the kind of fragility of our um our infrastructure our supply chains the other thing to say about infrastructure is you know i think when it comes to going forward mm -hmm. uh you know mark andreessen this kind of venture capitalist guy put out this manifesto called it's time to build or something like that and he was talking about like hyperloops and all these kinds of you know space elevators or whatever i don't think he mentioned that but he may as well flying cars and it's like you know we have um a tremendous amount of deferred maintenance on our infrastructure in the United States and our infrastructure gets like a D plus from the American Society of Civil Engineers. So, I mean, when it comes to like policy and creating jobs and stuff, we think that there's like just all dealing with that deferred maintenance and bringing up our existing systems to like, you know, best in class would be a really good way to kind of spend public money uh, when we get to thinking about longer term job creation. So that, I mean, to put that in the context of the economic recession um certainly which is now going to be going on for some time forward i mean is that you know to bring it back to our earlier conversation is that a venue in which um the sort of job status and the assumptions we have about who does what and what it's worth can be thrown into some kind of useful disarray do you think or am i being too green new deal e here i mean how much hope do you have that you could see a kind of a new deal for infrastructure and labor coming coming out of this. The conditions are not that different from what they were in the early 30s. Lee, I mean, any? Andy, why don't you that? take a shot at that one? Uh, yeah, I mean, the the uh, in some ways, the conditions aren't that different. In other ways, um, we've just seen a decades-long sustained attack on the organizational capabilities and intellectual capabilities of the federal government that mm. um, in ways that 
you know, Hoover keeps getting beat up, but Hoover was a planner, you know, Hoover was an engineer. And, and even though ideologically he was opposed, um, intellectually, uh, you know, he didn't erode the, the possibilities for what uh, Roosevelt and, and all of his um, New Dealers did in the 1930s and 1940s. So, um, yeah, I love the conversations I've seen about um, a, a WPA or, mm -hmm. or a new version of like a, um, a civilian health corps or, or, you know, caring professions, things like that. Um, I think the opportunity is perfect. And, and what Lee said, I think, is, is absolutely true that um, instead of building a bunch of new stuff, let's take the, the infrastructure that we have and, and bring it up at least closer to standards that we would expect. Um, but the caveat that I would throw in there is that uh, for two, I think Scott, one weak point that I see in scholars, including myself, is that we go for the home run and we go for the one, you know, what it, can the federal government do to fix this? Right. When um, lived reality during this pandemic is, uh, is, is so local um, and that, yeah, it'd be great to have the federal government come bail us out, but it's not going to happen. I mean, we've got to find the will in our communities and um, and culturally, if we're talking about this flip, to make uh, maintenance jobs more uh, higher status or or pay more. Um, we can't wait for Congress or or a president to do that for us. We've got to do that. Um, so the the activist spirit of your Friday panel is, is dead on, you know, that's where it's got to come from. Uh, you know, th those are a couple of preliminary thoughts there. That raises some concerns for me that ties into this other thing I wanted to talk with you guys about, and this brings it back to the cult of the innovator. Because if you're not looking for a New Deal kind of program or a qualified federal government to help you, then where are you going to look? And unfortunately, the way the movie script often runs is that you're going to look to the genius inventor who's going to somehow bail you out of these problems. I want to um, let listeners know, if you're not familiar, uh, with an article that was written in 2017 called Whitey on Mars, Elon Musk and the Rise of Silicon Valley's Strange Trickle-Down Science. And this is another co-authored piece in Aeon by Andy Russell and Lee Vinzel. And I just want to give one little teaser from that. This is from that article. Musk's plan to colonize Mars is a sign of an older and recurring social problem, Russell and Vincel wrote in 2017. What happens when the rich and powerful isolate themselves from everyday concerns? Musk wants to innovate and leave Earth rather than to take care of it or fix it and stay. Like so many of his peers in the innovating and disrupting classes, Musk prefers to dwell in fantasy and science fiction safely removed from the world of here and now. So I'm sure you have been following, or if not, I can update you, but Elon Musk has been tweeting a lot. <laughs> uh, he's had quite a lot to say about ventilators and tests and oh the God. lack of liberty in this particular moment to the point at which it made me feel like he was mounting some sort of uh, political campaign, which I wouldn't, wouldn't rule that out, but let's, let's talk about this a little bit here. You know, we've talked about the sort of, st the status domains for maintainers. Take us inside the, the, the mind of this innovator and 
or other innovators you may want to think about. What do they think they're doing? What does Elon Musk think he's doing in this moment? Andy, please. Please, Floyd, uh, Elon. <laughs> um, and if Elon Musk is free right now to call in uh, or send a question, I'm I, I welcome him. I welcome his perspective because it's a little vexing to me to understand what he thinks his role is right now, but he truly feels there is one. Andy, what do you, you think? Know, um, I haven't been paying attention. And, and the reason why I haven't been paying attention is because it doesn't matter to me. And one of the, um, one of the big kind of uh, personal things happening, I think for me and everyone else right now is a period of reflection. And um, there's certain voices and, and people in my life um, that I don't need in my life. And uh, Elon Musk is one of those people. So I don't know what he's been tweeting. I don't care what he's been tweeting. I mean, there's a type. I think we know the type. I think, uh, I, you know, speaking as a historian, I would love to think that um, that tech bro, Silicon Valley type, um, sunsetted in 2019 uh, in, a, in a new uh, kind of respect for humanity took over after then. Mm. Um, but I don't, I actually don't have that much to say about Elon Musk and his plans. I think, so what stands out to me about the whole innovation discourse around, uh, our moment is that, you know, we're dealing with like poorly maintained ventilators in the federal stockpile, right. That haven't been kept up. We're dealing with the production, just manufacturing of PPE. Like this is very basic industrial revolution 101 stuff. Right. Um, and then we're dealing with like the creation of vaccines, which also is hard, takes very smart people. But this is something we do right fairly often. And so when it comes to like actually responding to our moment, you have these very, in our industrial, fancy industrial technological culture, totally ordinary things, you know, like this is what we do and we're way behind on it. It's going to take a long time to get on top of it, but it's ordinary. And then you kind of, you know, you, you contrast this with like Musk or like, I've seen a lot of other stuff about, you know, these billionaire Silicon Valley guys who think they're going to save the world mm -hmm. or like, you know, design thinking people holding like meetups about how they're going to design thinking our way out of this or whatever. And I'm just like, what are you talking about? You know, what, literally what kind of invention are you talking about that's going to save us from this? You know, mm -hmm. unless you're going to create a time machine or a laser that shoots viruses or something like, you're just talking magic. There's nothing that's going to save us from this. It's just totally ordinary things. And so I, I feel like it's just, you know, we need to put more attention on that system that we know how to do things well, not that we're always doing it well, not that we're funding these things properly or taking care mm. properly. It's not about some kind of like magic bullet that's going to come out of nowhere and, and save our asses from this, you know? But when you ask that question, what are they talking about? This to me, I mean, this is a really important question to take seriously, which is, are they actually, do they really believe that we're sort of one or two great startups away from dealing with the COVID pandemic? That, that if we, that this is another form of disruption. And I've seen disasters described that way, that the disaster yeah. will disrupt. I've seen this in the higher education discourse. I've seen this in the healthcare discourse right now but that the answer will not be some of the things we've talked about earlier, collective action, care, 
but actually it will be that three or four great inventors will arise from this moment and they will leave this in, in this next moment. That's one thing they may be talking about. Yeah. The other thing they may be talking about is literally just hype. Yeah. Right. Just about share price. I mean, is there, are there other options here that I'm missing? I mean, are they, do they really believe that, the the innovator hype that that seems yeah, to come I mean, through perfectly captured like you know for a while and he might still be there but you know google had hired ray kurzweil who's like the singularity guy yeah. who thinks we're gonna like upload our minds on the computers and he has a vitamin company that he you know pounds vitamins all day long to stay alive long enough so they can upload his brain and like you know like what is google doing at, by hiring this guy, right? Do they really believe he's onto something and what the singularity is going to happen? Or is this a way to like play to a certain geek crowd and seem cool and signal yeah. and like, you know, have him hype things that fits into their interests? You know, I mean, I think he, that's the perfect embodiment of the split you're talking about. And then, you know, whether it's magical thinking or it's just total cynicism, you know, like no, neither option is good. Neither is good. But when, when Elon Musk, tweets if we need ventilators there shall be ventilators and i do CPAP machines yeah i mean i do wonder if he does he believe that he i almost said is it is it possible but i'm not going to go there but is it does he believe he can walk down to the floor of the of the tesla factory and summon five or ten engineers and thomas edison his way to a ventilator design that's going to save america i mean if that's really what he thinks and he's a idea merchant in this time, then I think we've got some deeper issues here than I was thinking. Yeah, he does know better. I mean, I think your scenarios are right. And in my perspective on, on Tesla um, and some of the other companies that, that he's been involved with, and even Google, to go to Lee's point, uh, they succeed when they do um, the known things right. They succeed when they're highly reliable, um, when they're highly efficient, um, and when they, can, when they can just do good old-fashioned industrial production right. He knows that because he's, he's making cars. He uh, struggled to make cars for so long, so he exactly. just had to get good at ordinary things. Mm. Yeah. Right, and so, um, it, you know, if he doesn't recognize that, then he needs people around him Surely someone in that company knows that. Um, so then, so then we're talking about someone who's posturing and playing games. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, you know, good for him. You know, this isn't this is an old trope. Uh, this right. is the, the celebrity egomaniac. Um, it's probably a little crazy. Probably a little high. That's there is a there's someone at General Motors though who could be like. You know, we could ask the question, how long would it take you to get like production of ventilators up and running right now? Who could tell you that? Mm -hmm. You know, because that's what they do. And they right. did it during World War Two. You know, they've done it a, a million times before. I mean, this is this is not magic. It's just it takes the system a while to do these kinds of things. But but this is just the thing that, that it's not if it were as simple as as clicking in, you know, uh, 500,000 ventilators. I think that in, in the problem solved, then problem solved. Um, and I'm all for getting out of this with a, with a tech, with a biomedical fix, with a pharma vaccine fix. Don't get me wrong. But, um, but I think the point is that it's not that simple. 
Right. right. Like Lee said, we've been making vaccines for, for decades and decades and decades. Yeah. Um, it's not that simple. This is a, a deeply complex socio-technical problem um, that cuts to the very core of how we live, what we care about, who we care about. Um, and, we, and it's not just Americans. I mean, global society is, is not up to the challenge right now of dealing. It's a difficult problem. Yeah. It was... Um apparently part of that discussion to come back to this more the point that you're both making is that some of this is just the banal production of industrial society and we don't like to call it that but that you know the government went to one of the automakers and said can you do x and the answer was um yeah we can and here's a price um and because they want a guaranteed market yeah yeah and that's what the Defense Production Act is supposed to do is in most cases is to, is to actually construct, not to construct a supply line and a factory line, but to construct a marketplace. Right. And make sure that the marketplace is durable at least as long. Yep. But that somehow doesn't, I don't know, that doesn't break through into the innovator. That doesn't yeah. tease the brain the way that you imagine the Sorcerer's Apprentice whipping up a 3D printed ventilator does. Yeah, I saw Brent Goldfarb, a, a business professor in Maryland, talking about this. And he was talking with, like, Russ Roberts and some other, other libertarians on Twitter. And the libertarians don't want to guarantee markets. And he's like, that's the only way this works. Right. You know, like, General Motors is not going to build this line for you unless you're saying, we will buy 200,000 ventilators. Right. We will, you know, that's, how, that's what you got to do in this situation. Totally. Or, or WHO or somebody to say, we will buy um, a billion doses of the vaccine that you're making. Um, none of us know if it's going to work or not, but we'll pay for it to scale. Yeah. Um, mm -hmm. And one of those, one of those will pay off. Mm -hmm. So Maybe, we hope, <laughs> we hope. I want to remind people that I'm talking to Andy Russell and Lee Vinsel on COVID calls. And we're talking about maintainers and labor and innovation and the disaster. And um, I had Peter Shulman on a few weeks ago, and we were talking about this issue too. And he said something interesting that I wanted to get your take on, which had to do back to what we were just talking about, that he, that the Defense Production Act has been around for a while, and it's been used a lot. Um, but that maybe somehow what's been lost in these last decades is logistical talent that there's been a privatization of the supply chain and of logistics and you know the military still does this obviously um but in non-military um settings that maybe as a skill set that that has eroded that our government has kind of um, lost that ability to carry out sort of large-scale national thinking and planning that would be necessary to do something like alleviate the, the ventilator shortage. And I don't know, I wonder what you think about, about that. And I want to, you know, we tie it back to this notion of the innovator. I mean, there's all sorts of unique people. We think back to the New Deal or World War II, unique skill sets in there that it's hard for me to know if they're high status or low status or improvised status and maintainers. But it seems like we need those kind of people right now who can serve for the public these, these special roles. I, I don't know if any of that resonates, but it was an interesting thing that Peter was getting into about a lost skill set, basically. Mm. 
I think we've gotten better at logistics over the last three decades. I mean, I think Walmart and Amazon are basically logistics firms. It's one of the few places in our society we've really moved forward in kind of economic growth, you know, productivity kinds of ways. Um, but I think that, you know, it's like the blind spots that we deal with with so many things where, you know, you can think of like orphan diseases, like this system was built for certain things. It's not built for, you know, public good production the way, you know, war or, you know, the New Deal or these moments where you have like, you know, kind of high national priorities. And so it's going to definitely take some retooling to kind of switch that over to another kind of production, I think. Uh, that would be my first take on it. What do you think, Andy? I think there's a physical digital thing going on. Um, so just think about all the people who are, um, who are trained and make a lot of money in software and databases and apps and web design. Um, and if 10%, I, you know, I'm just kind of making this up, but if 10% or 15% of those people um, had the sorts of skills that, that you're talking about, whether it's logistics or manufacturing, um, you know, I would think that would make an impact. Um, and this is a sort of thing that, that Morozov kind of makes one of in that, you know, to go back to this tech bro, we can Silicon Valley our way out of this with an app. You know, if, if, if what it took was an app, to resolve this pandemic, I think we'd be in really good shape. Yeah. But, um, <laughs> yeah. but, but we've got uh, over a generation of people, yeah. really, really smart people yeah. uh, who just don't, don't have any ability to, to reckon with the core problems here. And we've definitely lost manufacturing capacity. There's no doubt about that, right? I mean, and this is why you see these interesting things like Josh Hawley, the like Republican senator, you know, he's putting forward like almost like a Roosevelt ask like new deal jobs program like let's guarantee work for the duration of the crisis and yet there's this kind of trumpian nationalist spin about like let's bring production back to to the shores you know we don't want to rely on china for ppe anymore um and so you know i think it's this is falling into some really dark uh kind of undercurrents in our culture too when it comes to you know fear of others I have a come. We're up on time, and I want to. You probably both have other things you have to get doing. Can I? Can we get in another question? Yeah. Is, that, is it okay? Okay. Yeah. Maybe when I ask for one, I'll probably try to sneak in too. But the um, the I wanted to ask, and this is ties into what you were just talking about, Lee. That um, you're both experts not only in the history of technical education, but you are also both have engaged in educating two engineers. Um, so you're experts both in the history of it and the practice of it. What do you see right now already um, in the mix in terms of the way people may be talking about technology, technical education, maintainer education, and I guess crystal ball, if you will, it's always dangerous to ask historians to do this, but could we talk a little bit about what we might see coming out of this moment in terms of engineering, tech ed, what's happening in universities and colleges in that space? I want to hear from the dean. <laughs> well, um, we all want to hear from the dean. <laughs> <laughs> Funny you should ask. We have uh, a suite of interconnected minors in the humanitarian engineering, humanitarian engineering technology, and humanitarian studies uh, huh. that have been launched over this past year. And they're the answer to the 
question um, for parents and for students. Um, I want a job, but I want to make a difference in the world. How do I do that? And so for all of our engineering degrees and all of the engineering technologies degrees and all of the non-engineering degrees, students can take these project-based um, minors and, um, and work with community partners. We've got partners in, um, in a blind advocacy. We've got uh, ALS partner. There's a lot of nonprofits. It's pretty nonprofit rich territory here in central New York. So um, people have really responded to this. Our community partners, our prospective students, our current students, our faculty, everyone wants to get involved um, in making things that have some sort of societal angle to them. Um, so when we've used our 3D printing facility for PPE, um, people are excited about that. So I would imagine, you know, to be optimistic and to be a salesman for, um, for SUNY Poly, I would imagine that if you're a young person who wants to develop technical skills and find a job and make the world a better place, you could come study at SUNY Poly. Do you see that? That was a great dean job. That's that why he's got that job. Yeah, he's so good. I, I would, the only other thing I would add is, um, so Andy and I have a, an essay in an edited volume that's about uh, engineering education and maintenance. Mm -hmm. And so engineering programs all over the country, all over the world are all focused on innovation. You know, we get kids into engineering by having them do robot competitions, hackathons and all these things. And yet like 70% of uh, working engineers are either in operations or maintenance. You know, most engineers are actually just keeping our society running. Right. Um, and so, you know, one of the things we say in that um, uh, essay is we'd like to see engineering education, the cases that students tackle and things in class more oriented towards those things that they'll be doing in their work life, right? Like more maintenance jobs. And I think there could be some pretty cool case studies developed out of out of this moment about like you know how do you how do you ramp up production if you like right. have to turn over i mean there's there'd be so many great engineering case studies and you know i think it would kind of like you know it would feel like mean the stakes are high it's a meaningful thing for students to tackle like how do you handle the disaster so i, I would love to see that come out of engineering ed yeah how do you teach how do you teach calculus or stats with uh COVID examples right so i, I actually a lot of opportunity while we were just talking about that, I got a question in from Mike Fisher, who's actually um, asking if these kinds of curricula can engineering curricula be taught online. I mean, is this the moment in which we also see that inflection point about what we think of as high status education actually be offered in, uh, in, in virtual formats and distance formats? Well, of course, the answer was no until the governor said we're all going to distance learning. And then the answer was yes, of course we can. Right. Uh, so now planning for the fall, we're all doing it, trying to figure out what can we do online, what must be uh, on campus, and how can we fudge what's in the middle ground. So, yeah, yeah I think there's a lot you can do um, online. A lot but you can't do, too. There's a lot you can't do online. That's true. So um, last question here, back to you, uh, just bringing it full circle for each of you. Um, it's too early to say, probably, but how do you think this pandemic is going to shape your own work? Either literally the methods you use, like how you go about doing your work, um, or the kinds of questions that you 
are asking now, or you think you might want to be asking in the next, I think 24, 36 months, we're still in this. And even when we have a vaccine, we're still in this. So I think this is a slow disaster, certainly. But just to you, to you both, Andy, to you first, um, how you work or the kinds of things you want to work on, what's changing? Uh, I haven't really wrapped my head around that. You know, my, my priorities are... Um, the fact that I can see your pressure cooker behind you there indicates that we probably are in a very... <laughs> it's okay not to have wrapped your head around that yet. Um, you know, a, I, you know I, I'm in a fortunate position being tenured and uh, yeah. being comfortable where I am. And I have two young kids. So this has kind of been uh, a wake-up call in that regard, you know, to pay more attention... Uh, to what's going on in their lives, and to be as best of, uh, I'm a public official, so to be as best of a steward of, of scant taxpayer dollars that we have right. um, to help to help people get an education, you know, and um, my, you know, my work with Lee and uh, my work with the maintainers with Jessica is, um, I think, as much an advocacy and community building phase as it is a research phase right now. So, um, so I think my efforts uh, will go primarily into supporting um, people. Mm. Thank you for that. Jessica Meyerson, who you just mentioned, we will have on a future COVID calls as, as well. Lee, what about you? Yeah, I mean, I think that it's really going to um, uh, shape the conversation about our, around our book when it comes out in September. I mean, we got the word coronavirus. I, there's, you know, something close to it in the manuscript before it went to press. Mm. So um, we think that it's the right way to talk about the book and, you know, talk about how the book sheds light on our moment. So I think that's going to play out. Um, you know, on the other side, like I have a couple research projects going and I think that, you know, I've been thinking a lot about this. I think we're scholars are best at low and slow. And I think that not a lot of people are well placed to do like disaster research. You know, I, I really have a lot of respect for people like you and Kim Fortune and other people who have been working on this for a long time. And I see, um, see a lot of people kind of rushing into it. You know, I've been calling it like ambulance chaser social science. Like whenever one of these moments pop up, it's like everybody's got a, a you know, a thing. And I just, I've seen it happen so many times before and the stuff that's produced is not great, you know, or it just never comes into fruition. So with my own work, I'm really trying to think about like in what, you know, if there's something that's a logical extension and it makes sense and feels right, I'm, I can see it, but I haven't really happened upon that thing yet. And, you know, as a respecter of expertise, I know there's people who are better positioned to do that kind of stuff than I am. So, yeah. Well, I can't wait to see the new book. And I think this discussion that we've engaged today around uh, essential work and how that's a moving target and how the, the pandemic actually, I agree with you completely, it's gonna force us to reconnect with work of yours that isn't even that old. Um, so congratulations in advance on that. And maybe we can, when it's out, uh, we can get you back and, and talk about it then. So I want to remind everybody you've been listening to COVID Calls and COVID Calls takes place every weekday, 5 p.m. Eastern time. Tomorrow I'm going to be talking to Jim Kendra, the co-director of the Disaster Research Center at the University of Delaware. And also we'll have a public health update from Esther Chernat from Drexel University. Andy and Lee, thank you so much for making time for this conversation today. Thanks for having us, buddy. Okay, stay healthy, everybody. We'll see you tomorrow, five o'clock.